You're listening to Trek FM. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. The attempt on my life has left me scarred and deformed. But I assure you, my resolve has never been stronger. In order to ensure the security and continuing stability, the Republic will be reorganized into the first galactic empire for a safe and secure society. This is how liberty dies, with thunderous applause. Welcome everyone to Trek FM's local watering hole. Um, I hope that you have got something great from Ruby. I'm really excited. We're going to be talking about Star Wars Episode 3 this week, and it's going to be just a blast um, finishing out the prequels before we jump into the original trilogy soon and heading all the way towards episode seven there in December. Uh, before we do that, I want to remind everybody, of course, that the 602 Club is part of Trek FM, which is an entire network of podcasts devoted to Star Trek and beyond. That's right. You can find us on iTunes.com slash Trek FM. We are a feature provider there on iTunes. Very proud to be that. And, of course, we're also in Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone. You can find us on our website at trek.fm. You can grab the RSS link there, and you can also stream and download the MP3 file from the website. So many ways to listen. And, of course, there on iTunes, when you're there, make sure you do give us a star rating and review because I'd really like to be able to give away to you a $50 Amazon gift card, as well as the USS Eagle Moss Vengeance that uh, my friend Norman will be giving to the winner as well. Uh, That contest is running through the beginning of October, so you have all of September to get those reviews in and have them show up. We are trying to reach as many reviews as possible. We would love to hit the number of reviews, which would be 100. Uh, That's what we're going for. What's we're shooting for? We're shooting high, and so... Right now, we are at 25 written reviews, so I really appreciate all the people who have been going out there and doing that. I want to give a shout-out to Odo, could be that chair, as well as Christopher Settle and Dead Columbo. Thank you all for your five-star written reviews there on iTunes. We really appreciate that. It helps out the show greatly. And, of course, you all are entered into our contest. Well... Guys, uh, I have amazing guests back with me. Um, They are going to be rounding out the prequel trilogy here with me, and that is Bruce Gibson. Bruce, welcome back into the 602. Thank you for having me back once again, and uh, 
Thank you for saying we're amazing guests. That's just a little much there. I'm kind of blushing right now. But that may be because Ruby's serving drinks tonight, and she gave me what she calls the drink special Greedo Shot First, which is a bit of peppermint and bell pepper pieces in the drink, and it's kind of nasty, but it works. I've told her to stop experimenting with the drinks um, so because I, I don't want pepper in my like uh, anyway ah uh, goodness uh you can always tell her just to get you a nice scotch or something just tell her it's on me this okay. time uh john mills welcome back into the 602 how are you hello i'm i'm glad to be back i'm glad to see that my chair was left um dusty uh ruby's really got to work on on the housekeeping here i'm just going to throw that out there right now so you know please well no really john it was just the fact that she won't let anybody else sit in that chair oh well okay so yeah she doesn't even touch it uh, until you get back here because she wants to make sure that it's completely contoured to yourself that's true it does take me some time to work the groove back in if it gets touched (laughs) that's true well, guys, um, we I, we started something fun uh, when we were doing the first two films in the series here and uh, talking about our experience with the different films. And so I'm kind of wondering for you guys, because each of us have had an interesting story, what is your episode three experience? What about you, Bruce? It's a strange experience for me because I don't exactly remember seeing this movie that first time exactly what theater or which is really strange because i remember in detail seeing the first star wars in 77 and then in 80 83 and then 99 2002 but for some reason with 2005 i can't remember exactly precisely what i was doing or but I know I would have been with my wife I think I remember which theater it was but I will say what I do remember is when I left the theater I thought okay if I were to die tomorrow I can say I've seen every Star Wars movie the saga is complete <laughs> and then a couple years ago I realized the circle is now complete. The circle is not complete because more <laughs> movies are coming. So I need to live a little longer. Yes, we want you to live a very long time, Bruce. Well, if yeah, Disney keeps making man. films, I'll live a long, long time. Oh, well, we figured out the secret to immortality then. Is Disney buying Lucasfilm? O- this is going to keep us all alive. If only they would have told Anakin that. That's how you keep people alive. <laughs> 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 oh my gosh well awesome. uh, maybe um bruce you weren't on any kind of medication at that point and that's why you just can't quite remember what happened in you know where you were when you saw the movie i think because i, I, I don't i don't know I, I i was not on any medication except for like cholesterol medicine but that wouldn't yeah. affect anything okay well maybe it was just so mind-blowing the experience that it literally blew those memories out of the water. Actually, I think in some ways uh, you might be a little right in the fact that I knew this was the end, and so I kind of had mixed emotions. Mm. Sure. Mm. Sure, that makes sense. Uh, Well, I, you know, the story of the prequels, wow, everything, I was at a different stage in my life. Everyone that came out, by the time this came out, I had gotten married. And I was actually on a business trip 
down in Louisville, Kentucky, of all places. And I had made a declaration that hell and high water couldn't keep me away uh, from seeing this on opening night at midnight. And so uh, even though I was on a business trip and everybody else was going out to like, you know, business dinners and, you know, staff dinners and having fun, my wife flew down to Louisville and joined up with me and a guy from the Convention and Visitors Bureau. And I think it, I can't remember his name. Anyway, and he went with us to the midnight showing because he knew that he nice. lived there. So he knew the movie theater. <laughs> he was able to get the tickets and everything. And uh, we went in and watched the midnight showing in Louisville, Kentucky. And I can tell you that uh, I and I have no trouble admitting this. I cried uh, that I recall twice during the movie. I got a little misty at the beginning because it was the feeling of, oh, gosh, this is this is it. This is the last time I'm going to be in a movie theater seeing this for the first time, you know. And then at the end, like I'd been so moved and then also realizing again, it's over. Like I was emotionally spent at the end of it. So I can't remember the name of the movie theater, but I can tell you that it wasn't stadium seating. It was an old style rake uh, audience seating arrangement. We were about three quarters back, a little off center. And just I was just it was over. Before I realized it had begun, I and I, I will always remember that night because, bo- trust me, my wife scored a lot of points for going to those lengths to make sure she was there with me for the midnight showing. That's dedication right there, gents. That's a winner. Yeah. yeah. That's you, you know you got a good woman when she's willing to fly down on your business <laughs> trip just so you can see the movie together. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Well, you know, at that point uh, in my life, it changed as well. I was in a different stage, and um, I was, you know, working and everything, and working at an insurance agency in Dallas, and a couple of the other guys that were there with me, they were all big fans, and we were planning to go to the movie together up uh, where I had seen the movie before for episode two, where I'd gone six times in one day, but we were just going to go to the midnight showing. And of course, 2005 is the last time people really, you know, camped out for films. So there were fans of that theater who had been there for, you know, weeks and weeks. Um, And there were tents set up and everything. Our boss let us go early that day, so we went and got in line. When we got there about, oh, I guess a little afternoon, the line was already around the building. Wow. And so standing in line for 10 hours in the Texas sun to see, you know, episode three, uh, I had, by that point, I had my Obi-Wan lightsaber hilt from Master Replicas. I was wearing it that day. I felt so cool. Um, there were raffles going on, fans having just a great time, and it was one of those things where it's just, it was like kind of being at a con where you're all just celebrating, and yeah. it was just such a fun atmosphere, and, and then, you know, we finally got let into the theater, you know, nine hours later, and there's a big party going on, they're doing the the raffle drawing, and I'm still so mad at myself to this day if I had spent one more dollar one more ticket number, I would have won 
the Force Effects Darth Vader lightsaber. Oh. Yeah. And I'm still so mad at myself. I'm like, one freaking dollar stood between me and a Force Effects lightsaber. So that's, yeah, that was my experience. Surrounded by fans, people that were willing to stand in line for 10 hours or more to see the movie. And, you know, when you're just surrounded by that kind of excitement and and love it can't you you can't have a bad experience and um you know I'm, I'm with you guys it was an emotional for me it was an emotional thing to to see and um, to watch finally play out and I think we all kind of hit on and the end I mean and I say that as a question because we all thought it was the end but yeah. it's not but it was but it's not but it was but it's not yeah. Um, and so I wanted to ask you, though, because this is the end of Anakin Skywalker. I mean, this is the fulfillment of that part of the Skywalker saga. How do you think that this wrapped it up for you? Uh, you know, we'd all grown up with the original trilogy. We'd all seen what happened to Darth Vader. We just didn't know completely how he got there. How do you feel like this for you? sitting with it for so long now, how did it, and how does it wrap up this part of the saga? I think it, this movie fulfilled what I needed to see in wrapping up Anakin Skywalker's story. And that's coming from seeing episode one and two. And really in a lot of ways, it wrapped it up the way I was expecting after seeing those two films. But prior to the prequel trilogy, I had different ideas about Anakin Skywalker, which I think a lot of people did. When we saw Anakin as an old man and as a Force ghost in Return of the Jedi, I think we had different visions, different interpretations of what the Clone Wars was going to be like. So when the prequel trilogy came out, especially The Phantom Menace, it really, I think, threw a lot of fans off because that's not what they were envisioning. That's not what they were picturing. But once you saw those first two, episode one and two, those films, then seeing Anakin in episode three, him being portrayed as the hero of the Clone Wars that we saw in the beginning and then his fall was maybe a little too quick but you know you only have a two two and a half hour long movie it it i mean it it worked for me it it really was it felt right i agree uh it it did feel right it does feel right and in terms of i'm glad you brought up the the quick turn because i not necessarily the first time i watched it but probably the second or third time i watched it I realized that Anakin's turn doesn't happen when we all think it does. And I don't know if Lucas did that on purpose. I don't know if that was his intent or whatever. But the way I read the film and the way I read it, uh, you know, after the second or third time, was Anakin's fall is either when he when he kills Dooku in the beginning or it actually happened back when he killed all the, the Tuscans. And so the film isn't, a march of a good man into evil. It's the march of an evil man who remembers he's supposed to be good and he's struggling with it through the whole thing. Like he doesn't want to admit who he has become. 
And that's why when he gets that excuse from Palpatine, like that turn in the, um, in, you know, in the Galactic, the Galactic Opera House is like that scene is such a, a linchpin scene. I mean, obviously it's constructed as such. I'm, just, I'm not like blowing anybody's mind with that, but it's so, it's for me textually, it's really Anakin hearing that he has an excuse to do what, to embrace who he has become. So, you know, I, I mean, that's, that's my, my reaction, you know, in detail to that, but you know, that, that's just sort of like where the, the film sits for me. Well, I'm glad you brought up the Tuscan Raiders because I was thinking that exact same thing. When I saw Attack of the Clones, that scene with the Tuscan Raiders, I stepped out of that wondering, is he already on the dark side or does he just have a step in? He's not fully in, but maybe he's halfway in. And you're right. It's if you if you put those two films together, the the turn to the dark side doesn't seem as abrupt. When you look at Revenge of the Sith alone, you may be looking at that as, oh, he's totally on the light side of the force, and all of a sudden, boom, he's going to the dark. No, he's already been going down that path. He's already on his way. We're just seeing the end of that journey. Right. And I think that that is the reason, and it it really brought to light the truth of Yoda saying, you know, once you start down the dark path, forever will it dominate your destiny. Yeah. And so Anakin starting on the dark path in episode two and then finding a way. I, I think he finds an outlet in the Clone Wars. Um, and I I would say, John, that if we're going to talk about when the fall is, that it would be when Palpatine gives him the excuse to take Dooku's life. And he struggles with the idea of it not being the Jedi way because there still is that part of him that says, I should be better than this. But that's exactly why he has the conversation then later with Padme of saying, I'm not the Jedi I should be. I want more. And I I think that he's already chosen to take more. He's just still frustrated that there's a piece of morality that's holding him back and I think it actually is I think it's one what Padme will think of him and two I think it may be Obi-Wan and it's not until he's able to rationalize Obi-Wan as being the the bad guy the Jedi being the bad people that he can truly fully rationalize in his mind the decision he's made that he's vindicated by killing all the Jedi and even Obi-Wan because they've all turned against him. Don't you turn against me too. Um, and so, I, you know, um, you're either with me or against me. You know, that's the argument. And Obi-Wan says, look, Jedi don't deal in absolutes, which means I I still want to be your friend. I want you to come back. But if you're going to make that choice, then my only choice is I, I have to put a stop to this kind of evil. Yeah, but but see the thing is, I think that uh, Sith more than any other um, of of the films uh, has actual subtext to it. Like the majority of them, you know, there's stuff that you can read into it. There's symbolism. I'm not taking that away, but I think that sometimes what throws 
some people uh, with the movie is that Anakin isn't telling the audience like his words don't he's actually disseminating he's not saying what he means um and so I think that his whole you know you're with me or against me I'll I you know I I'll bring justice and you know and, and you know dealing in absolutes and everything it's it's not even that he can even be talked to he's just talking he's just waiting for again the you know the excuse to go after Obi-Wan you know but but I think that the subtext really plays into that too well this is a very confusing time in the galaxy with all the events that are taking place and when Palpatine tells Anakin to kill Dooku and of course as you mentioned that's not the Jedi way but here's Anakin looking at someone who at that point he thinks is true and honest and good and good is telling him to commit something that is bad. And maybe this action that he thinks is bad really is good. If you throw in dark disciple, the Christy golden novel into this mix now where the Jedi are saying we must kill Dooku yet again, Anakin is talking to people who are righteous and good, who are saying we must kill. There are so many mixed messages between Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith and all throughout the Clone Wars animated series to Anakin that what is right and what is wrong is becoming blurred. And it's almost just go with what you're feeling. And the Jedi helped push him in that direction. He went with his feelings, which took him to the dark side. There, there are two things I, that uh, that I want to follow up on with that. Touching on the feeling thing, that's great because I, I'm glad you brought that up because that goes all the way back to episode one. Qui-Gon actually tells him, you know, f- uh, not to think, to feel when he's in the in the pod race. So, like, there's that setup right there. And so is this the logical extension of, you know, he is just doing... He's just following his feelings. But additionally, with the whole killing Dooku, you know, it's wrong. It's not the Jedi way. Yet, even without Dark Disciple, uh, the Jedi then send Obi-Wan out to go, you know, murder Grievous. You know, there's no, don't capture Grievous. Don't bring him back. Just, you know, go out, wipe him out. And then the war is over. And so there, you know, within the text of the film itself, there's that whole mixed message from the Jedi themselves about what is right and what is wrong. I think, though, that the argument in Anakin's head with Dooku is that he's unarmed. That that was the the frustration that he had disarmed him. He wasn't he wasn't a threat anymore. He's he can kill him at any moment. They can take him into custody and can stand trial. And that's the that's what's happening in that scene so that's why he's having such a frustration um and that's where i kind of think yes dark disciple adds a little bit of gray area to that but at the same time grievous like dooku is the military leader of this organization and taking them out will put an end to the war so for jedi that that should be anathema but they've fallen down this slippery slope to where that they can rationalize doing that. They've, they've come in so far from their morals. 
So I think there's a, I think there is a big difference, and that's what Anakin is struggling with because it truly isn't the Jedi way. Once you have somebody surrendered, you don't stab them in the back, basically, or chop their head off. That's that's not that's not what you do, you know. So which plays then into the rest of the film, where you know when Mace says basically the same thing back to him that Palpatine says about no, just kill him. He's too dangerous to be left alive. You know, I think you're right on, Bruce, that in the end, Anakin basically, I think, just makes the decision to to do what he wants to do. Take the power for himself so he can save Padme so that he can do what he wants to do. He's tired of everybody telling him what to do. So and everybody's not being necessarily truthful on either side. They're they're saying one thing and doing another. So screw all of that. I'm just going to do what I want to do, which is one, save Padme. And if that means that I have to serve the Dark Lord of the Sith, I don't care anymore. You know, what I'm, you know what I'm saying? But see, I this is where I question Anakin's motivation. I don't think Anakin really is invested in Padme as much as everybody believes. Um, you know, I think we talked about it on the, the previous episode. Like he's really just looking, you know, when he quote unquote falls in love with her, it's more that he's looking to replace a, you know, a... a, a a hole in his heart that his mother's death left, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that, you know, even more than that, Padme, again, is is an excuse uh, for him. I don't think that there is an act. I think that there is a desire to save her, but not as strong as we would think. And going back and looking back at the movie, there's actually something that jumped out at me because right now um, we're, we're expecting our third child and something that jumped out at me as I was re-examining things is when Anakin has his nightmare and Padme comes to him and says, you know, what, what was your dream about? And he says, you die in childbirth. And Padme's first reaction is to grab her belly and say, and the baby. And Anakin is sort of dismissive. He's like, I don't, I don't know. And then he turns it back into talking about her. And he says, I'm not going to lose you the way I lost my mother. So it's not even a motivation of love. It's a fear of loss, you know, which again speaks to what Yoda says, uh, I think, in the very next scene where, you know, Yoda says it's the shadow of greed. Death is normal. You can't, you know, you, you can't let your fears get a hold of you here. Um, but like, I don't know, it just jumped out to me this time that even back at that point, it's not that Anakin has this noble motivation to save Padme because he loves her. He has this other motivation paired with it of, he just doesn't want to feel out of control of things again. Oh, I think that's a huge aspect here of control versus trusting in the force you know Anakin has never learned that he's only you learned to use the force to do what it he tells it to do he's never thought of it in the terms that Qui-Gon thinks of it or that Obi-Wan or Yoda think of it he that's that's not how I think Anakin always saw his leaving and as he grew up in, 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 you know, learning the Jedi ways from Obi-Wan as a way of never not being in control of his own life again. Um, he was never going to be a slave again. Um, we see that 
clearly in the Clone Wars, the trouble he still has with slavery. And I think it's a control issue for Anakin. And, you know, he works to control every single part of his life. And part of that is Padme. And I do think it's a possessive, greedy, controlling love that... should we call it love? Well, I don't really have another word for it, but it, it is a it is a greed, and it's interesting because, you know, that's one of the main themes throughout the entire prequel trilogy is how greed in every single aspect of life slowly undermines every single part of this society to turn it into an empire, and yeah. and it's the greed of Anakin. And it's the greed of the senators. It's the greed of the trade federation. It's the greed of of the the Sith. It's the greed of everyone. Don't working forget the together. greed of Watto. Uh, the greed of Watto. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, I completely uh, agree with you, John. I think that Anakin is one of those people in this position, especially because he's the quote unquote chosen one to take advantage of the situation and to be able to get this far without anybody truly questioning him until the very end when, you know, obviously Obi-Wan and and Mace and Yoda are sitting there talking about it on the transport as he's about to go off, um, Yoda's about to go off to Kashyyyk. They're talking about, isn't he the chosen one? And they're just now realizing we may have fracked up. We could have misread this prophecy and he might not actually be the chosen one which is a whole conversation in and of itself it's a whole conversation (laughs) that's a whole podcast that we'll have to do one day but i think it just is you were talking about the subtext the depth everything that's going on here the prequels are so full of it um lucas is just jam-packing this series with so much to think about that i think people turned it off and i will say this and it might people might hate me for it but the OT is not full of that. It is, it's a much simpler story yeah. which, with a lot less themes, and the themes are much more fairy tale um, than I think they are truly in the prequels, where George is dealing with a lot of personal things um, that he's seeing going on. And so I wanted to ask you guys what are some of those things that you see kind of Lucas? working through here the messages that were important to him that he's trying to get people to think about and do you think that that's truly different than what you saw from the original trilogy bruce if i can jump in uh with episode three i'm going to state flat out it's my favorite one of the six that currently exist i know that that might seem like apostasy to other star wars fans but i think it is no, this, it's Empire! Yeah, I know, right? Oh, burn me at the stake. <laughs> Exile me to Hoth. Uh, but We'll send you to Dagobah instead. Uh, you know, that's not so bad. I got some good stew over there. but That is true. The, yeah, <laughs> root leaf. But this is, I, I maintain, Lucas's most personal film. And I believe that this is, this Revenge of the Sith is a long overdue for lack of a better word apology to Marsha because you see in this movie somebody who was treated as a you know a wonder child who had great success who let it go to his head who became by the end trapped by the machine you know 
by his own decisions and alienated from everybody around him and living but very broken and spiritually dead. And I I do think that Revenge of the Sith very much is Lucas admitting to Marsha after all of those years, you know, I think I had something to do with the divorce too. And I acknowledge now, like I really think he was working out something very, very personal with, with Sith. Wow. That, I uh, haven't thought about that before. So Anakin is George Lucas. That's yeah. Yeah. Cause uh, what his divorce ended right after, uh, uh, Return of the Jedi, wasn't it? They they were they were actually keeping it quiet, but during post production, they had started separation proceedings. Hmm. Yeah, so it was right when he was finishing these three films that yep. was taking up all his time, and he was, in a sense, almost like at that time considered the chosen one of movie making. He was on this huge right. pedestal, and uh, you know he had to put his marriage and his family on the back burner, but he was always making promises that he was going, once this was done, Mm -hmm. he was going to, to be there. He was going to be full time, but it was a little, you know, it was just too much too late. And, um, and I'm trying, and and I'm talking through this as I'm thinking about the film. It's almost, you know, Anakin's kind of doing the same thing. What, you know, he's even promising Padme at the end, we will rule the galaxy together. Just give me the time, give me the space to, to make these things happen. But it was again, too little, too late. I, I think, you know, looking at the, the prequel trilogy and specifically with, um, Sith, um, I, I do think that, you know, George definitely had some some political messages in, in the the original trilogy. And there's the wonderful themes of, of the character arcs that he has, the these mythic arcs that, you know, uh, so Joseph Campbell in, in, in the end. Um, but there's something that's interesting, I think, about... Uh, the prequel trilogy because there still is that influence of, of that Joseph Campbellness to things, and yet it's not so clear cut, and it makes everything a little bit murkier because the heroes become the villains that become the heroes, you know, and that's one of the reasons that George said, you know, he opened up the, with the crawl that there are heroes on both sides here and that war isn't just clear cut and dry all the time of you know there's a good side there's a bad side not unfortunately every war isn't world war ii where it can clearly say you're nazi and that's okay you know you're bad completely bad there's nothing redeeming about you or taking you out um that just doesn't happen all that often and so and clearly too i mean this war that is is one that's been manufactured. And so there are heroes on both sides because the reasons, and we even see this in the film, uh, Padme kind of coming around saying, "Are what if we're the very thing that we were fighting against? You know, um, realizing that maybe it's all a sham, maybe it's a lie. So, I mean, the depth here, I think, is is fantastic. And I think the reason that this movie did so well obviously at the box office and got the you know 80% of rotten tomatoes is this is the film i think 
when people came and this is the prequel trilogy, I kind of think everybody thought that every film was going to be like episode three. Yeah, I think that's and fair. So when that wasn't the case with episode one and they got Goofy Jar Jar, Goofy, that's right. Oh, gosh, there, Mickey. Uh, you know, that that's not exactly, oh, oh sorry there, Goofy. Didn't mean to bump into you there. Um, yeah, I think that's, they just didn't expect that to be a part of this this new trilogy. What they expected was the dark, gritty episode three. Everything is about, the entire three films is about Anakin being trained and falling. And that's not where Lucas wanted to go with the story. That's not what he had envisioned. And so, you know, this was, I think, and we've kind of danced around it, but the fall of Anakin Skywalker is the the hinge of the movie for so many people. And a lot of people came away and they didn't buy that Faustian deal. Um, they One, a lot of people don't necessarily always know that idea of selling your soul to the devil for this forbidden knowledge that you want um to save you know who you love and that's you know lucas is using another literary motif here um that's older just as he's using the camelot idea that's older that we're not as familiar with courtly love all those kind of things and he knew that people might not love this but he stuck to his guns and he said i this is where i'm going to go with the story um kind of want to just talk about the fall and I mean, there's a lot that's really interesting here with the character of of Anakin. You know, we've talked a little bit about his control issues. He's a little bit of a control freak. Um, but uh, what are some of the other things that you see kind of going along with this fall that really kind of make it resonate and work for you or maybe not so much for you? Well, I think uh, I watched it just the other day and and that's the beauty of the the Star Wars movies is you get something new. You find something in there every time, no matter how many times you watch it, even New Hope. I'm always finding one little thing in there that I go, why didn't I even think of that? Or why didn't I notice that before? And in this movie, this last viewing I saw when Anakin is on the balcony of Padme and I guess his place and she's, you know, brushing her hair, which hmm. that scene's you know, a little awkward as everything about the relationship is awkward as we talked about in the last episode, but she says to him, so love has blinded you. And that really stood out this time to me. Cause it's like, yeah, that's the concept of this. I mean, we're talking, is it love or not? I don't know. But it's that obsession of protecting her and it's that obsession of her and his love for her that has blinded him to what is actually going on and what he should be doing. And so his fall is because of that blindness that is caused by his love for Padme and every situation in this film, he just falls deeper and deeper when, when Mace Windu is out of the picture in that scene and Anakin is told you are now Darth Vader pause. Right? So, that's one step, but I feel like it just continues and continues as he's killing the younglings and the Jedi and as he sees Padme and, and Force chokes her and he's fighting Obi-Wan. It just continues this downward slide throughout the whole film. And that 
works for me because I don't look at it as like, oh, wow, he quickly became Darth Vader when he saved Palpatine from Mace Windu and now he's Darth Vader. No, that was yet one more step, one more big step. And he just keeps stepping further and further and further into the dark side to the point when he's in that helmet and that mask at the end. He truly is so far down that road. But there's always a little bit of good in him. <laughs> one small step for yeah. Sith, one giant leap for Sith kind. Yeah. Well, I, you know, to to get back though to the to the Padme thing, like their relationship is a parallel for what's happening because you have Anakin, representative of you know the Jedi, the heroes. They're also blind to what's going on. And Padme is that good impulse that's almost in a way like that they have subscribed to, but aren't actually as devoted to as they they think that they are. Um, and in terms of people being, you know, the, the motivations being murky, there are heroes on both sides. Evil is everywhere. I think that is also a very important thing um, in terms of the fall of the Republic uh, or any war that you're going to discuss where it it isn't clear cut because when you have it's an actual civil war in this is and he he goes to the lengths of calling the you know the uh, the the rebels in this <laughs> the confederacy of independent systems so i've always wondered is there even a a theme about like the Confederacy is not justified for going to war. They, they instigated this. They were, they were behind so much pain and sorrow and suffering and greed. But at the same time, there are still people there who aren't even sure what they're fighting for, uh, you know, and, and are even removed just like the Republic is because their troops are just pawns to them, not actual people. But I, I just, I think that Padme and Anakin's relationship is the key to understanding what it, what what's happening to the Republic, especially through Revenge of the Sith. I, I just think that it's a it's a parallel uh, for what's going yeah. through everything, and the you know she calls it out. This war rep- represents a failure to listen, and she wants diplomacy. But Anakin is, no, crush our enemies, destroy, you know, he's like Conan. It's so interesting because I think you're right on, John. And it's interesting to watch just talking on the Anakin's guide. We talked about him, you know, his overbearing need for control of everything in his life. And, you know, he says to her, you know, I... She's like, I'm not going to die in childbirth. And he's, she's like, I promise you. And he's like, no, I promise you. And that Anakin becomes his own worst enemy. He he brings about the very thing he swore he'd prevent. And I think that's an interesting parallel, and especially as you were talking about Lucas maybe putting a lot of himself in, in Anakin. And I thought it was so... Uh, telling that you know when we do everything we can when we focus all our energy on trying to 
fight a nightmare, we become the nightmare a lot of times. And that's exactly what Anakin becomes. And it's so interesting because on the other side with Padme, I think Padme really... A lot of people get kind of down about her character in this film, but I think she plays such an important, pivotal role because she is symbolically linked with all that is good in the galaxy still, and it's slowly being choked out with her literally and then metaphorically with the galaxy so that as she dies, all that is beautiful and wonderful about this galaxy is slowly being destroyed. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that... You know, the OT becomes so stark. It's like as what femininity represents in mythology is being destroyed until we kind of see the return. And you don't get this return until Return of the Jedi with the green of Endor. Um, And then, of course, Leia being a little bit softer and that return of femininity coming back mythologically. So I think it's a really big amount of symbolism that Padme is portraying she's so important so pivotal to this 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 um this whole arc here and I I think people do a really disservice when they talk about that Padme is not a great character because I think that she is everything that's good in the galaxy being choked out and that as she dies the technological terror is born mm-hmm you know, literally and figuratively. Well, uh, yeah, definitely. And actually, I, if you'll forgive me, I, I actually want to talk about the the structure of the the end of the movie because it's. I think that it speaks very much to your point that there's the, you know, the whole reason they're showing the way things you know go that way is it's it's not that Vader is literally being worked on as she's dying in childbirth. They're paired up simply for the thematic pairing. Um, you know, it's not meant to show an exact, you know, time and space, but I think that speaks very much to your point that the technological terror being born while the good and the light is dying. And, you know, even thinking of the Death Star as the thing that is born, not even in terms of a technological terror, but this is the child, like, Anakin has turned his back on the good and pure life and source of life and has instead followed that whole, you know, uh, arc of Darth Plagueis and is with the Death Star, with Palpatine, given birth, in a sense, to this new horror. You know, this is the family he's embraced over the family he's rejected. Well, I want to go back to the whole parallels because... Anakin and the Jedi Council are very similar in the fact that Anakin is trying to save Padme. The Jedi Council is trying to save the Republic and Liberty. And as Padme mentions in the Senate that this is how Liberty dies. It's that fear of Liberty and the Republic dying and the Jedi are now blinded and it, they want control just like Anakin wants control of Padme. And in both situations, the Jedi and Anakin lose because that control kills the very thing they're trying to protect. And 
therefore, when we get into the original trilogy, it's everything's dead. Everything they wanted is dead. And now they're just corrupt. The Empire, the Republic is now the Emperor, the Empire. And Padme is now dead. And as a result of that, we've got Anakin as Darth Vader. They totally screwed everything that they wanted because of what Palpatine did. He he twisted everybody and knew that they needed control and they lost everything. It's an interesting yeah. thing watching the the fall of the Republic happen. And, you know, I think that this is one of the best themes of Star Wars as well as obviously the prequels is how the Republic gets corrupted into an empire. And and then, of course, along with that, there's the smaller story of how two people's decisions bring down Camelot. You know, um, the way that Lancelot and Guinevere were with each other, the illicitness of their love is what ends up bringing down Camelot in a lot of ways. And in the same sense, Anakin and Padme are kind of the linchpins here. And as they continue down this path of lies and deceit, they're falling into the same thing, the lies and deceit of the Senate, um, the the senators, the Republic itself, um, the, the lies of the entire galaxy of getting into the Civil War uh, with the Confederacy of, of independent systems. That's also a lie. I mean, that everything is built on all of these lies. And of course, it all comes crashing down in the end um, because Lies are unsustainable. It's one of my favorite things about the Dark Knight trilogy is that, you know, you end the, what everybody thinks is the greatest of all of them, Dark Knight, but you end it on a lie. And that lie brings everything crashing down by the next film. And it's the truth that sets everybody free. Um, And it's not till people start to know the truth in the original trilogy that it begins to set the galaxy free. You know, when Luke learns about who Darth Vader is as his father, that it sets, it starts to set in motion a path that, and that Luke is going to be on a different path than Obi Wan and Yoda think he'll be on, which is the redemption of his father, not just the destruction of his father. Um, they can't see that Yoda and Obi Wan because all they can see is the bad. But there's there's something about the truth that sets something free and. Luke to see a path that even those two Jedi can't see and so I think it's just really interesting here where all the lies finally come crashing down and destroy everything we are in the middle of election season here and and it's an important thing that we not continue as the Republic did to allow lies to continue that, that that be the, the framework with which we continue to allow things to be built on because it will come crashing down. And, and that's what I like, I think, uh, what Lucas is really driving home here with episode three and the prequel trilogy. But is there also sort of a, because Lucas is such a student of history, um, is there almost a fatalist you know, the, the, there's a difference in the tones between the two trilogies. And what's so interesting to me is that Star Wars, now known as A New Hope, came out, uh, you know, on the tail end of Watergate, Studio 54, like crime in New York was nuts. And, you know, uh, the the president at the time, you know, said, well, we're, we're suffering from a great national malaise. And Star Wars shows up and save, like saves the day. 
like people start to be po- like a movie gives them a positive message. I mean, if you look at the sci-fi of the seventies, you know, like Soylent Green and Omega, it's all bummers, man. It's really dark in the seventies, and then Star Wars shows up and blows the lid off. I can't off do that, Dave. Yeah, well, that was well, anyway. Uh, but <laughs> the prequel trilogy comes along, and it winds up having this more fatalist uh, sort of thought that, okay, yeah, you know, you saw good times and everything, but you know what? If you want to get back to that, all throughout history, society has to tear itself down before it can fix itself. So if you think things are bad, it's really just going to... Like, are, are you following me on that? Where it's like, there's this weird reflection in the prequel trilogy that is not in the uh in the original trilogy the original trilogy defied the mood and woke up you know this sort of like heroic desire in people to see a better you know world and happiness whereas the prequels there's very much a sense throughout the whole thing of eh you know it's going to suck so like i i almost wonder if there's a if it's problematic for audiences because it's more reflective of that mentality than the more hopeful one. No, I think I think you're onto something. Obviously, the fall of the Republic is very much based on the fall of Rome. And then I would think that the rise of the rebellion in some ways is akin to kind of the Renaissance appearing. Um which makes I'm wondering the new trilogy does that make that the World War One World War Two era um, of of history maybe next when we're talking about major conflicts and changes in the course of of history at that point yeah I you know it it all depends on if they decide to move forward with the sort of tone poem structure um, like that that's the big. You know, to get back to how this movie affected us at the time, I think that a lot of the trepidation that personally, you know, just speaking for me, that I feel coming up on episode seven is the fact that episode three did give me that moment of like, it's done, it's it's over, and now it's not, and it's sort of weird, Um well, I, I, yeah, I think it was now, you know, it, it's almost as if you've reopened the wound. Uh, yeah. Before, everything had closure. You felt like, okay, I know what happens to these characters. Of course, there was the EU, but you knew where the characters ended up. Everybody ended up kind of in a happy place. But now you're back in the that position of, oh, crap. Now I have to worry about what happened to Luke, what happened to Leia, what happens to Han, and am I going to like the decisions that they're actually making with the characters? Because before, I can just imagine in my head what happened, and now they're going to actually tell me what happened. It's kind of like... It's the same um, bind that the prequels were in. We'd well, all written the story in our heads. Yes, a little bit, except... Um, I, I guess it was a little bit easier for me to accept that one, whereas this one reminds me more of... You know how they keep bringing shows back? Ah, uh. You know, like 10 yeah. years later yeah, and kind of ruining them there for you. That's how I kind of feel about, and I was listening to another podcast and, and they said that, and I thought that is a great way to put it 
when you think about them bringing back, you know, the X-Files and all these other uh, uh, shows that are kind of coming back. And it's like, regardless of how they ended, it ended and I didn't have to worry about the characters anymore. Um, Well, that's why I'm hoping the new cast is the central cast to the new films. Almost like, you know, you're talking about bringing a, a TV series back it's one thing to bring the X-Files back with the same characters. It's another thing if you go from Star Trek, the original series, to the next generation. Different crew, different situation. Even though we have Luke, Leia, and Han, and Chewie in this next film, I I'm hope there's different parts of me that want to see them be the centralized characters. But if anything, I really think they should just be the bridge to start off this new generation. And... I would hope that these films do not try to feel like the original trilogy. I think it's great that the prequel trilogy feels different than the original trilogy. I like to see the sequel trilogy stand on its own and feel different too, because these are all different points in time in this timeline in the Star Wars universe. And I used to view, in a lot of ways, the six films together, the prequel trilogy being like the Old Testament and the original trilogy is the New Testament. Now we got yeah. this other trilogy. And, and, you know, the Old Testament and New <laughs> Testament feel different from each other. Now we've got this other testament. I don't even know what we, we would even call it now. I think that you have a real point, though, Bruce, because really the only thing that they need to do is that one of those new cast members has to be a Skywalker. This the saga yeah. needs to be about the Skywalkers. That's what the, George always said it was. So that's really all that needs to happen is that they need to have a connection with the Skywalker family so that the storyline can continue. And yeah, of course, you can have the the original cast be there, but that the actual thrust of the movie is is more about you know. Um, that that newer generation and so i i think that's a that's a good point we'll see what happens well you you know it's interesting though because we're we're sitting here we're and we're all justifiably i think like a little little trepidatious we're not quite sure what to expect with the you know with the sequel trilogy and everything but like with clone wars clone wars slips in and you know pours in this all of this story into the gap between two and three. And I don't recall feeling the same trepidation. Why? You know, because Clone Wars does act as a bridge. It, it, it can and does inform certain things, uh, you know, and, and cast them in a different light or casts more light on them, uh, you know, f- from the prequels and everything. What what's different about that versus the sequels? Like I I didn't have that same sort of fear. What is it that's different? Well, because it's not part of the movie saga. I mean, you can lump it in, but it it's an animated show. It's on TV. I, mm. I think it's just mm-hmm. because what medium it is, and and that would apply to comics and novels and games and so forth. We want it to all fit together. But if it's a movie within the saga and it's an episode, whatever, well, dang, it needs to all like fit and work together perfectly. So the Clone Wars, if it had stunk, we could have dismissed it. I think so. Yeah. Okay. And then luckily it didn't stink. And I think one of the best things uh, about that is that it shed so much light on 
the entire prequel trilogy. So I kind of want to dive right into that with you guys. That in light of the Clone Wars, how does it change how you view the prequels and especially episode three with everything that they give us? Well, I think the clone troopers uh, to me have more a human aspect to them because we got to know the characters. Uh, different troopers had different personalities that that made watching the order 66 more powerful for me after watching the clone wars, because I felt like I knew these clone troopers when I first saw the movie, they were in a sense, just almost like robots to me. They were all, they're all the same people. They're clones. They're they've switched their goal of protecting the Jedi and fighting alongside them and now killing them because that's how they're programmed to. And then when we get to the Clone Wars series, they address Order 66 and how that was programmed into them. And I had more feelings for these guys because these were heroes. These were each individuals. They had dreams. They had goals. And in a lot of ways, they were slaves too, just like Anakin grew up as a slave and there's a slave of this whole war. And I had a lot more feelings for them into episode three. I think that's a great point. I, I do think that the clones are where they really, um, you know, brought to light a lot of themes. I, I think, of course, Ahsoka, um, the idea that Anakin had an apprentice between the movies, um, but that doesn't really change how I viewed episode three. It's very weird. The only thing that's really impacted uh, the way I view episode three are the episodes where they um, maybe address some things that episode three was expected to address, but didn't um, such as, you know, Qui-Gon, um, you know, because, you know, at the end of episode three, it's, uh, you know, Oh, hey, Obi-Wan, um, by the way, just so you know, uh, Qui-Gon's been talking to me, and we're going to teach you how to preserve yourself after death. It's like, oh, surprise. We got and, some learning for you, son. Yeah, right, exactly. Training I have for you while in exile. But the, I, I think that the arcs that spoke to the Force and, you know, even some of the intrigue, like... I know that this, I mean, this will sound really lame, but I mean, that I think it was a four episode arc in the sixth season that de- that dealt with the financing of the war and how intricate that was. Yeah. It's that was episodes, fascinating to yeah. me because it was like, oh, wow. Okay. So that's how it all worked. Okay. Like it gave you a chance to see the mechanics behind the scenes that weren't important that, I mean, honestly, aren't important to a two hour film but are important to the fans to know. Like, how did they get the money for it? And, you know, how did the banking clan figure in? And and how did Qui-Gon establish the link? And, and, and those sorts of things. For me, the things that really stand out from the Clone Wars and, and kind of changed my perspective, I think, a little bit of episode three, when I watch it now, one is Anakin, his character is so much richer because of all that he's been through, through the Clone Wars. I think that so that by the time I'm watching episode three, I truly kind of understand his character more um, and all that he's gone through. All the, when Bruce, you were talking about the ups and the downs and all the deception and lies that Anakin has felt like he's been through, all the, the, um, 
the ways that he feels like the Jedi betrayed him, the Clone Wars do such a great job of systematically working through all of that so that by the time you get there, he already is on the brink of breaking. And it's easily broken. And I, I think the fact that an animated show quote-unquote for kids gives you such a great representation of the hero who will turn into the villain is fantastic um i mean that's one of the best things that the clone wars does is really flesh out that character of anakin skywalker i don't discount that but one of the things that i liked about episode three and i sort of like have this bifurcated mindset uh, when it comes to episode three, because it's not just my favorite of the six, it's it's actually one of my favorite films of all time, is there is, and, and try not to run with this one, but there's a lot in Anakin that, because I don't have that larger arc of like, you know, specific betrayals or specific things, I'm able to read more of myself into him and his reactions to situations. And so... In a sense, there's, so you know, with Clone Wars, it's sort of restrictive. He becomes less personally relatable to me as a mm-hmm. character. So when I go in to watch episode three, I sort of take everything from Clone Wars and kind of put it on a shelf. You know, maybe with the exception of the Qui-Gon stuff. Because I want to still be able to read in my own self and things that, metaphorically speak to me about his character no i think that's i mean and that's one of the joys of having all the information is you can do what you want with it yeah um and and that's uh, the other thing that i really love about the clone wars is just the way that it it shows the destruction of the galaxy slowly and surely over time that everything just keeps descending into hell until you finally get to hell on mustafar where the end is coming nigh for, you know, everything. Like, it's it's over. You know, yeah. the, the dream is dead. And, um, and I love, and I kind of wanted to just talk about that, that scene. It's, just, it's a powerful scene. Um, it's, it's not in the outline. I don't care. Um, <laughs> this is my show. I'll do what I want. Uh, it, I love the fact that Anakin is standing there on the platform in the lava he's yelling at obi-wan and obi-wan's just telling him don't do it i i will i'm gonna take you down if you do it um and the fact that obi-wan literally and figuratively has the high ground is and the way that the whole scene is done i I know that some people complain that it's just overdone with the imagery of descending into hell and you know, Anakin has made the deal with the devil and now he's paying for it, you know, in the deepest, darkest, you know, level of hell. But I think it just works so much. One, because I think more than not, people need to get slapped in the face these days with imagery because they're not paying attention when they're watching movies. Um, and two, I just, I love the way that everything about that scene happens so that the guy who has been kind of the person we've been following through the prequels, Obi-Wan, the one we know kind of as the bastion of good and all of that, is standing on the hill on the high ground, and he has that morally and just literally. And I, I just really, I, I love that scene. 
Um, and I think it's it's probably, you know, of course, then it descends into them yelling at each other again and the heartbreak of Obi-Wan Kenobi. So. Well, I think that uh, you're absolutely right. That scene is is wonderful. I love it. Um, but, I, you know, there there's also... You know, I so long as we're going off script, um, in the novelization, uh, they really give he really gave voice to Obi-Wan's internal conflict. Mm-hmm. And I think it comes across on the screen, but the I can't remember the exact wording, but he basically says Obi-Wan realizes during the fight, he's like, he realizes what's wrong is he still loves Anakin and he has mm-hmm. to stop loving Anakin. And that's the only way he can bring himself. Like he ha- he makes the decision. I got to kill him. I can't love him. I and I have to. I have to just tear that out of myself and stop fighting just to defend. But this is this has got to be over. And then I mean, you know, if you really think about it, he watches his best friend burn as he believes to death. Like, that's just awful. I mean, what a scene. Yeah, but if you're standing there with a lightsaber and you're watching your friend burn to death, would you just watch him burn to death or would you put him out of your misery? That's the the one problem I have with that scene. I I love the scene. It's just sometimes I think, why would he... I, I know for story reasons he had to keep him alive, but why not just end him? I mean, he's evil, he's screaming, he's on fire, he's in pain. You could just end his misery now and, and move on. But instead, he just picks up the lightsaber and says, well, you just keep on burning and, and feel that. Well, he's stopped screaming by the time he picks up the saber and walks away, mm-hmm. hasn't he? Um, uh, well, uh, he's still kind of groaning. But I think it's fair to presume he's dead by that point. You know, like, mm. I think, though, that more so it's thematically what George is trying to do is that Anakin's been hoisted on his own petard. It's all of his choices that have led him to be lying there burning to death. And so that that's really kind of the the imagery that you're being left with of Anakin's responsible really in the end for being there, you know, without an arm and two legs and a cybernetic arm burning to death because it's his choices that have put him there, not really Obi-Wan's action. Yeah, but but I think to speak to... I mean, Bruce isn't the first person to bring up, why doesn't he just turn on his lightsaber, walk down and cut off his head, and just be sure that it's done? And I, I think that it is specifically because he's not going to walk down... And do that, like I think it's a totally fair presumption to be like, well, yeah, he's he's done for, and I don't really want to go down and dismember a body. So I'm, you know, like I, I think that Obi Wan, even in a practical sense, it makes sense. Like I, I'm not going to walk down to the edge of the lava, and you know, risk catching on fire myself. You know, I think it's a fair presumption to be like he's done. He's he's over with. And I always read it as this, is that Obi-Wan leaves it to the Force almost if if Anakin dies. Because I, I, I like the novelization there, but what I like more is my reading in there, is that there's a part of Obi-Wan that still loves Anakin. And 
he believes he stopped Anakin and that Anakin will die, but he doesn't want to be the one to put the saber through his head. Well, the way it was originally uh, scripted, at least, was uh, Obi-Wan was supposed to leave as he saw Palpatine's shuttle arriving. So there was this Palpatine's arriving and Obi-Wan's like, I got to get out of Dodge. And he runs off. And it was apparently Ewan McGregor who talked Lucas into not doing it that way. He said, we have to leave it where Obi-Wan honestly believes Anakin is dead. And he's not leaving it open-ended like that. uh, You know, and just running away. And I, so I think that that is, especially given the other way it could have played, that is, I, I do think it, it very much makes sense what he does. And, in, you know, at least he's not saying, eh, I might be dead. And, but look, Palpatine's here and running off, you know? So basically, Ewan was trying to set up his own trilogy between the series <laughs> for when he finds out that, you know, oh, he's still alive. <laughs> he didn't finish the job. Oh, uh, that's still that's still the moment I want to <laughs> yes, see. Yes, I so want to see that story. Yeah, yeah, where Obi Wan's like, wait, oh no, you know, like news eventually reaches out to the outer rim, and he's on Tatooine, and they're like, oh, did you hear the news? The Emperor's got this new right hand man. See, he's named Darth Vader. See, and you know, <laughs> Obi Wan's like, his name's what? I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm oh, gonna go man. back out to the Jundland wastes. Then, thank you. The the easiest answer is obviously is that. He can't kill him. That's just the point. Because it's not the Jedi way. It's not. No, it's not the story. (laughs) (laughs) He has to stay alive. So, I mean, there isn't. It's not Obi-Wan being a jerk. It's just in the end, he can't truly finish off Anakin because he has to be left alive to become Darth Vader. Um, And so I always took it as that. And I because I always read that into Obi-Wan's character that no matter what he did, there was a part of him that, as he and he screams this to him, you were my brother, I loved you, and that's why he will leave it up to nature to take its course for Anakin to die, but he's not going to be the one in the end to, and because if he had wanted to, he could have simply chopped Anakin in half when he, he but no, the move he mm. does is to cut off his arms and his leg and uh, and um, Obi-Wan makes a conscious choice to mm. do everything he can to stop him without him, you know, I, I don't know if putting I agree. off his head. I don't know if I agree with that. I think that um, there's a little bit too much uh, exculpation of Obi-Wan in that line of thought. I just go back to... It makes sense. He thinks his friend is dead. He leaves. And there's even a textual moment where Palpatine shows up and there's disbelief in his voice when he goes, he, he's still alive. You know, like Palpatine thinks he's showing up to pick up a corpse. And he looks down and it's like, I, I just think I believed, you know, it's still played as if he's dead. And then that, that shot of just the metallic hand coming up and grabbing onto the gravel, trying to go, and then and then you hear, uh, and you know it's like there is this shock moment. If you're seeing these movies, like I imagine as a, as a kid or something, and you don't know what's going to happen next, 
Like, I, I think it really plays as a real like, whoa, he he moved. What happened? So, yeah, I mean, you might think he's dead. And then you see that, like you said, and and I can buy all that. The only part I don't buy is, OK, if if Obi-Wan thinks Anakin is dead. Sure, that makes sense. But wouldn't he feel in the force that he's still alive? Well, wouldn't Dooku have felt Obi-Wan spying on him on Geonosis? As we have come to find out, the uh, the force radar doesn't quite work the way we all thought it did uh, from the original trilogy. Well, and the dark side does uh, cloud things. Right. Right. Maybe the dark side was masking Anakin and was right. like, yeah, hey, go, go, get out of here. Get out well, of And I think that it leads again into the Clone Wars and how does, um, you know, Darth Maul survive and the fact that the dark side keeps him alive and actually, you know, they described it that the dark side kind of encompassed him and like brought parts to his body to create the spider legs. And so I think that actually does a really good job of showing how Anakin does stay alive, that it is the dark side of the force that's so strong at that point that has tipped the balance that is keeping this, you know, new Sith alive. <laughs> so maybe he did temporarily die, and the uh, dark side is so Ooh. strong it brought him right back. There could, you go, like a little uh, dark side cardiac, uh, what are those little machines that they have at the football stadiums yeah. now when you have too many nachos? A defibrillator? Yeah, there you a go. A dark side defibrillator? But uh, there's almost a comic scene, you know, because you brought up Darth Maul. Like there's almost, you could almost write a comic scene where like Obi-Wan finds out that Vader is alive, even though he like cut him up and everything where it's like, what again? What? Is, why doesn't anybody I cut up stay dead? <laughs> like Obi-Wan's got a, you know, 0% track record That's here. True. Next time I go for the head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, next time he, next time I will use a blaster, you know, it's yeah, like whatever. For you guys, um, there are some, missing scenes um we talked a little bit about the fact that the uh, yoda communing with qui-gon wasn't there and then of course i think the biggest scene really that got cut was and there there's a bunch i mean the fact that they killed shakti twice in the deleted scenes mm. and then completely took out her death altogether then she could show up again in the force unleashed what did you guys think about the fact that they did take away the whole coalition of senators of the 2000 the you know uh, mon matha was in the film um padme bail organa leading this charge of holding back palpatine from gaining more power and really interesting in that scene they're talking about the fact that they're not even sure if they can trust the jedi because they're not sure where the Jedi's loyalties lie. Again, reinforcing that the Jedi shouldn't be involved in political parties yeah. um, or, you know, being sponsored by the government. So um, maybe George is a big separation of church and state guy. Um, <laughs> but yeah, what did you guys think about some of those scenes? I wish the scenes were there, but especially when I saw the deleted scenes, I was hoping they'd come out with, get ready for it, a special edition that had those scenes yeah. placed back in, but I'm glad that they're not. I think they're interesting, but I don't think they add that much to the story. I think the movie needs to focus on Anakin and tell Anakin's story and not veer off too much into this other yeah. piece of it. Um, it would have been nice to see a little more about Padme. Uh, it adds a little more to her story, but I don't think it adds anything to move anything really to the film. There is only one 
scene, and it's like half a scene that I would really want added back in. And it's um, it's what leads up to uh, Palpatine saying he's putting him on the Jedi Council. It's a scene, the front half of that scene that was edited out is Anakin is standing behind the Chancellor the way that Vader is going to stand by the Emperor. And Padme and Bale and a few other people are like presenting a case to Palpatine about, you know, uh, reopening diplomacy and everything like that. And, pa- and uh, Palpatine, of course, is telling him to go pound sand. And Padme shoots a look at Anakin. Like, you know, say something. And Anakin actually looks down in a way like, I, I, don't, I don't know what to say. And then they leave. And then it goes right into, you know, I hope you trust me, Anakin. And, you know, he appoints him as his personal representative on the Jedi Council. Like, the, that... It's such a small snippet of time. Now, the movie still works without it, but it's just that that's the one thing I would like added back in. One, I think uh, I would like personally to see, have seen a little bit more with this coalition of senators because what I think it does is that it makes Padme asking the question later on to Anakin about maybe we're on the wrong side seem like it's coming from more than just nothing you know um i i really think that that means a lot more and then of course when you truly see padme sitting there in the council chambers as you know uh palpatine is is elaborating this plot about the jedi and she says this is how liberty dies to thunderous applause and you can tell that it is again it, it is padme who is all that was good and kind of righteous and and whatnot about the republic still and all of that, again, is slowly being squelched out by Palpatine and his machinations. And I just I, I think it would have just added a little bit more depth to her character, but also to the discussions that she has with with Anakin and just give them a little bit more weight. Um, so and, and again, they're not really long scenes, but a couple of them interspersed in there, I thought would have been just for me. It would have strengthened some of what George was already doing, and and that's just kind of how I felt about it, especially when I watch specifically that one scene there. Fair enough. Well, the last one, uh, you know, because of the Clone Wars, we did get the Yoda arc where he got to commune with Qui-Gon, and Qui-Gon led him to the priestesses that taught him all that he was going to need to know to begin on the journey— so the scene we lost with Yoda communing with Qui-Gon there um, doesn't seem so much of a loss at this point. But I remember when the movie first came out and I saw that scene and it wasn't there, I was a little bit disappointed because I had heard rumors of it. And then when it wasn't there, and then of course we had the novelization and it was there, I just, I really liked that. Now it's not as bad in light of the Clone Wars, but beforehand it was like, oh man, I just, that would have been so cool. It was such a bummer that that wasn't there. That was the thing I was the most disappointed about. And I either I heard or I assumed that uh, Liam Neeson wasn't available or didn't want to do it or whatever. And I thought, man, it's too bad he didn't step up and, and do that. I guess he wasn't interested or available. And then to see him do it in the Clone Wars, I was like, well, wait, if he's going to show up to a 
uh, cartoon series. He certainly could have showed up to the movie. Come on. Why wasn't that in the movie? So if that out of the whole saga, that's the one thing I would really wish that would have been added into to any piece of the saga is that scene of of Qui-Gon communing with uh, with Yoda. But it's great that's in the Clone Wars. That helps make up for that. But, I mean, we see a little bit, a hint of it in Attack of the Clones. So, you know, it's it's it, it's okay. But I wish it were there. Uh, yeah, it, you can live without it. Um, I, I wish it were there um, as well. I You know, something... I remember reading rumors, at least, uh, back at the time, that there was some bad blood between uh, Liam Neeson and George Lucas. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Like Taylor Swift and Katy Perry kind of bad blood? Uh, you're, those are English words. I have no idea what you said. <laughs> uh, uh, so I think that that might have contributed, um, and maybe that, maybe that wound had healed. But I, I remember uh, that... Liam Neeson had made some dismissive comment about the ridiculousness of the movies and, or something like that, uh, back when, before episode two came out, where basically, you know, like a reporter started, you know, everybody's favorite game between episode one and episode three was to get some actor that had, or somebody who had had a, uh, a tie to, you know, episode one to in some way say something that, you know, confirmed their opinion or, or, or something. But uh, I, I do think that that might have contributed. Or, I mean, maybe maybe Liam Neeson was just like, nah, I don't want to do or, it. Or, you know, George Lucas looked at it and said, it's, it's, it's not needed because I need Yoda to tell Obi-Wan about it. So why see it and then hear Yoda explain it to Obi-Wan? It's- no, I, I was going to say, I think that you could make an argument for it not being in there because that moment i remember seeing it the first time that moment when yoda says you know he says you know master obi-wan you know something something please stay something more i have to tell you and he says you know your old master and obi-wan lights up and he goes qui-gon like as a fan and as an audience member like i perked up like that it it really is a nice surprise moment whereas if you'd heard qui-gon before it wouldn't have been a surprise, like as surprising to have that moment. So I guess you could argue your way into saying it's not as necessary as we fans might feel. That right. It, it was a great, a great gift to us fans to see that. But I honestly think George said, hmm, no, don't, I don't think I need it. I think it's just slow it down. I think we just need to keep the pace going. Yeah. Well, and then, you know, I, in the end, it all turned out all right because I think it worked so well in the Clone Wars there with the Yoda arc, and you hear Qui Gon again when you've already heard him in the Mortis arc. It just shows how powerful Qui Gon is and important he is. And again, that's one of those things that really changes my viewing of all of the prequels in light of the Clone Wars, but specifically Episode Three is just how important Qui Gon is to all of this somehow. And I love that there's still a bunch of shrouded mystery around that. But at the same time, it's very clear that Qui-Gon had a very special role to play in his death. As Yoda says, it, it's not something to be mourned, but something to be celebrated, you know. Um, and he was the first one to teach, you know, the Jedi, especially Yoda, and then 
of course it will be Obi-Wan, but that death is just the next step, you know, and, and, and in the Star Wars universe, that, that's a huge revelation as the Sith are fully, you know, invested in finding a way to be immortal, yeah. and yet it's the Jedi and their selflessness that find that that's the way to immortality. Right, if Anakin had just been more patient, he would have found the answer. He yeah. didn't need to do what he did to find the answer. And as we're sitting here talking about this, and maybe this plays into episode seven, maybe not. Did anybody think to teach Luke that trick? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, was it, in, was it in Obi-Wan's journal where it was like, read first, and it's like circled like a hundred times, like with arrows? <laughs> it's highlighted. This is the important one right here. Well, no, but I mean, that's one of the things we do have to remember is is that the the one of the reasons with merging in the Force is so that your consciousness was still there and you could influence the next generation. The EU is out now, so Luke could have spent years qui- communing with Qui-Gon and Anakin and Obi-Wan and oh, Yoda, man. learning about the ways of the Force. And that's what I think is so interesting because that kind of thing can actually happen, whereas in the EU, that never really got to happen very much because it was something that they kind of had to retcon out by saying, oh, well, he can only show up a few times. And he's- now, I want to see that in, in the next film or the, in the next trilogy. Exactly, something, yeah. I, I, I want to see some connection to Qui-Gon or at least not Luke acknowledge that he's he's studied he's been studying the teachings of Qui-Gon because it's Qui-Gon that yeah. later taught Yoda and Obi-Wan when they are in exile and now you know if Luke is in exile or whatever I would love to see that it's the teachings of Qui-Gon that has brought this new philosophy this new way this new Jedi type of the, there's the old type of Jedi this is the new type of type of Jedi and it, it's a result of Qui-Gon so you're saying that Qui-Gon brings the new wave of Jedi? Yes. I, 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 I think you'd be getting your hopes up because of the specific moment that J.J. Abrams said that he only considered the original trilogy as quote-unquote canon when he was writing uh, episode seven. So I don't think that we're going to get any Qui-Gon love at all. And that is heartbreaking to me to say as well. Um, but I... I don't think that there will be that strong a tie uh, to the prequels in there. Well, we'll see. Uh, I hope. Hey, I hope I'm wrong. I honestly <laughs> I do. Hope so too. I hope. I hope maybe they. Maybe they. Uh, maybe one of the books that takes place between Jedi and uh, and Force Awakens. Maybe that's how they'll address any fan desire. Well, for all that. I can that say, John, cool. it wouldn't be the first time you were wrong. Um, actually, I, no, that's true. Uh, it would be the second time because, uh, shortly before we started recording, I talked about what a pleasant and nice person you were, Bruce. So you're right. <laughs> that's too wrong in the last hour and a half. Uh, well, at least you admit, <laughs> at least you admit your mistakes. Uh, if y'all are going to fight, take it outside. Ruby doesn't like the smashed up chairs. Um, well, okay. So what would you rate Revenge of the Sith? It's one of my favorite films of all time, period and end of sentence. It's not just uh, my favorite of the six. It is one of my favorite of all time. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of factors that go into that for any any person there. You know, it's more than just the film sometimes that uh, informs what your favorite films are. It's more than a feeling. Basically. 
but yeah, I, I you know, I if if I were to be told in some bizarre, weird, hypothetical world that we all like to throw ourselves into when we have these ridiculous sorts of premises, if I were told you can only show one of the six to somebody and they will never ever see any of the others, this would be the one I would show. Ooh, that's very interesting. I don't know if I could say that or not. I'd have to think if I could only show one, which would it be? Uh, maybe this one, but I, as someone who grew up with the original trilogy, saw the first movie come out in 1977, I'm going to have to say that, um, you know, episode three, uh, you know, yeah, it's my favorite of the six. And I don't think you'll hear many people say that who, uh, from that generation, but I, it, it's so compact with so much drama, so much story, so much of everything. It's just so compact with so much. I mean, the beginning of the film, it's, it's lighthearted, it's fun. It's a fun adventure. And then it becomes dark and it's all depressing. And then it ends with this hope and this light. There's so much emotion and there's so much at play that I, it, out of the six movies, it it is my favorite until we see what comes out later. Oh, man. Um, well, nobody's given a rating, but I'm going to give one. And I'm just going to give one Obi-Wan Kenobi. I think that speaks volumes for me. Um, I love episode three. It is not my favorite, um, but it is my second favorite Star Wars movie and probably the one that I have seen the most next to Empire Strikes Back. And I just, I, I'm i with you, Bruce. I love the themes of this movie. I love how much it is trying to, to say. I love that each time I watch it, there's something different and interesting. And I love the way that it wraps up the prequel trilogy um, on, on such a solid note. You know, even people who didn't like the prequels reach episode three and are like, yeah, that episode three is pretty good. You know, it, it's just hard to argue with how good episode three is. And, um, you know, I I have never sat down and, and talked the, the saga like this. And it's been fascinating to get to do it, especially as we're leading up to episode seven and um, really kind of diving in and seeing where the themes take us and specifically talking through one through six and of course on the way to seven how those themes will progress so what i'm really interested to see as we talked about tonight okay once we get to episodes four five and six are there any continuation of themes or does it really just feel like a new set of themes and so i'm I, i'm really excited to get to continue to do that and um so it's it's going to be great. We have uh, some special guests next time with us. Um, I'm very excited to bring on from the Star Wars Report podcast. Uh, Bethany and Riley Blanton are going to be with me and John. And uh, Bruce is sporting their T-shirt. They're great, great fans. They have their own podcasting network. Fantastic. And I, I can't wait to get to talk to them. Um, kids of the prequels about the original trilogy and star wars itself so i think it's going to be a ton of fun um, because john and i represent the old generation 
and they represent the new generation, and I think it's going to be a, a blast. So ne- make sure to stay with us here in the 602 Club as we continue our Star Wars retrospective, working towards that awakening that you you felt. I know you felt it. So um, it's I'm so glad you guys have been through the uh, prequel trilogy with me, um, and uh, it's been an honor to talk the prequel trilogy with both of you. Um, guys, remember that you can find all the shows on iTunes at iTunes.com slash Trek FM. And of course, make sure you do leave us that. Uh, well, John, what should they leave us on iTunes? A five-star review. That's okay. I, I, I actually think uh, that for this podcast, um, iTunes has done away with uh, everything else. You can only give it five stars. <laughs> well, I hope so. And I appreciate that that is what uh, would... Everyone has given us so far out of the 35 reviews and ratings we have. It is five stars. I really appreciate all the people who take the time out to go do that. And you will be rewarded if you do give us a written review. You'll be entered to win a $50 gift card and a USS Vengeance Eagle Moss there at the beginning of October. So make sure you do that. Another really important thing here for the network is we're a listener-supported network, which means that it's really listeners like you that keep this network running. You can check out everything at patreon.com slash trek.fm and see the ways that you can help the network keep coming to you each week. Really want to thank Ken Tripp for his support of the network and helping bring the 602 Club to you each week by being an associate producer. That's one of the perks that comes with some of the levels there on Patreon. It was well as the Patreon Roundtable, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on the content development team, and so much more. Again, you'll find all the details of the ways that you can help us here on the network at patreon.com slash trekfm. And of course, a special thanks to my executive producers, Norman Lau and Christopher Brian Jones. Guys, if you would like to contact us, I'd love to get some emails about what you think about episode three. Do that at trek.fm slash contact. You can leave us a voicemail, look in the sidebar on the show page, or go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. We're on Twitter at trek.fm, and of course, Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. Bruce, tell everybody about the Babel Conference we have. Well, the Babel Conference is a closed group on Facebook where people who listen to Trek FM are the people who are participate. So... Unless you listen to Trek FM, if you, if you don't listen to Trek FM, you wouldn't know about the Babel Conference. So it's specifically to those listeners of Trek FM that know about the group. You go in there and uh, you ask to be a member of the group. You get permission to come in and we discuss everything from Star Trek to other things such as Star Wars or any other franchises. It's just a great place and a safe place to talk about things without a whole lot of muckety-muck from some other places that you go to. Yeah, definitely. We'll check everything out at Facebook. You can type Babel into the search field there in Facebook, or if you go to our website at trek.fm, just click Discussion on the menu bar, and it'll bring you there. You guys are just awesome. And, um, you know, th- this show wouldn't be what it is without the guests that come on it. And I- I'm so glad that we got to uh, finish out the prequel trilogy. Bruce, uh, before we go, let everybody know where they can find you online and, um, you know, contact you if they want to talk something Star Wars or anything else. Yes, I'm on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. And of course, I'm in the Babel Conference. 
And uh, I've also started writing for StarWarsReport.com. And as of this week, I can say that I am a new permanent co-host of Cloud City Casino podcast, which is part of the Star Wars Report family of podcasts. And um, yeah, so hey, you can listen to me weekly. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. That should be yippee. (laughs) Yippee. Exactly. Hey, and real quick, I just want to say about Riley and Bethany when they talk um a new hope and yeah they're part of the prequel uh generation i had the pleasure about uh, two years ago i think seeing a new hope on the big screen with them at a theater in atlanta that was replaying it so it was really cool to sit there and watch it with them and and we discussed it afterwards so i'm really curious to hear what they say on the show (laughs) (laughs) i'm i'm really excited as well so um it, I think it's it's just going to be a, a blast to get to talk about uh, Star Wars with them after listening to them for so long. So I'm honored that they did say yes. John, um, before we go, you've got some things to tell everyone. You've got a few places online that people need to be checking you out. And, of course, uh, mm-hmm. a few five-star podcasts yourself, my friend. Yeah, uh, you can uh, find me on Twitter at Kessel Junkie, K-E-S-S-E-L-J-U-N-K-I-E. Uh, or at KesselJunkie.com. And you can also find me elsewhere on the Trek FM network on Commentary Trek Stars uh, that I'm on with uh, the wonderful, delightful Mike Schindler. Uh, we feel it's a five-star podcast as well. And then, of course, I'm on a podcast with my uh, good friend Craig called Words with Nerds, which is also locatable on the iTunes and the Stitcher and the like. Oh, can I say one thing real quick? I'm sorry. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) I'm going to be at Dragon Con in Atlanta. Woo! The weekend of Labor Day. You can pick up my Parsec. Oh, cool. That's right. Exactly. I can. (laughs) I I will definitely represent. So um, please come to the Star Wars room. And, of course, Star Trek has its own uh, track there. But I will be on a couple panels uh, that are Star Wars related. I'm also playing the Emperor. In uh, the William Shakespeare's The Jedi Doth Returns. Nice. So I'm working on that. Excellent. I'm working on that voice and everything. We need somebody to periscope that ASAP. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That needs to be broadcast live All on right, the internet. We'll find out how we can do that. Okay. <laughs> Man. Oh, gosh. Everybody's so much cooler than I am. Um, well, you know, if you want to talk to the uncool one, um, I'm on Twitter at MattRushing02. I'm also on Instagram at mrushing. I talk about Deep Space Nine with Christopher Jones on The Orb. Um, Definitely the best Star Trek show out there, and I hope you'll check that out and listen to us. Uh, We have a blast talking about Deep Space Nine. You can also find me on Literary Treks with Dan Gunther talking about the books and comics of Star Trek, as well as interviewing the authors. We just had a fantastic interview with David Mack and... One of the most personal that we've ever had with an author. So a lot of fun. And I have my own personal blog at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. Well, thank you everyone for joining us. And may the force be with you. <laughs>